Finding our authentic being is the way we heal shame. It takes a lot of courage. Getting Discomfortable with Sally Adams Jones. Today's guest is an author, counselor, artist, and educator who did her PhD in art education with a focus on the transformative power of creative practices. I actually first encountered Sally on an app called Clubhouse, which is a sort of live radio app. And Sally was leading this wonderful session on shame, and I just had to have her on the show. So thank you so much for joining me, Sally. It is really good to be with you here, AJ. Thanks for asking me. So I'm curious, just to start off, I'd love to hear if, is there a kind of special reason that you got interested in shame or a backstory that brought it to you? Or, or is it just something that you've encountered in your work and seen the importance of? Yeah, there's quite an important backstory. Thank you for introducing me and explaining my multiple roles, one of which is to research what makes people creative and what transforms people, because they're very interrelated as far as Mm -hmm. I'm concerned. And my major research project for my PhD was to go to an African village, which was healing itself from the HIV pandemic with a very developed creative practice. So I went there to see what they were doing and to kind of uh, inform myself and others of how how a whole collective community can transform itself through a creative practice. And what I discovered there, which I hadn't realized before I went, was the thing they were healing from most was shame Mm. because the whole village had plunged into the middle of a pandemic and a third of them had died and the remaining two-thirds were either ill with HIV or plunged into shame as a community because it was still a very silenced topic. When I arrived there in 2012 was the height of the pandemic People were still preferring to die rather than come out as positive. And I was so blown away by this that I realized at the bottom of this was the deepest collective shame I had ever come across. And on the other hand, the way they were coming out of this silencing that shame causes and the depression. And the isolation was through a creative practice. So I had stumbled onto the most amazing situation where people, a whole village, had collectively decided to transform their shame, come out of their situation with dignity and hope and a story that they would own and how that was transforming their entire community and giving them a sense of pride, dignity, and agency 
that I'd never seen before. So that's the backstory of how I realized that having a deep collective shame can often repress our creativity and our voice. And there are other communities around the world that have varying degrees of cultural shame that also repress their creativity. You know, one such community might be traditionally the Japanese practice of harikiri, where suicide was the only option for some kind of disgrace or shame. And I noticed in Africa as well, people were preferring to die, literally, I'm not exaggerating, rather than own their status as HIV positive because of the shame. I had never encountered this extreme form of collective shame. And so I'm saying Africa is not the only place it exists. Culturally, it's been to varying degrees in different cultures. And I would like to discuss further the shame that has been caused by our history, the colonial shame, the patriarchal shame, the way we shame each other all the time, which prevents us from being authentic and from finding our creativity and our voice. So that's the backstory of how. So I'm not a shame expert. I just want to own that. I'm, my subject is more on how we transform, specifically through our creativity. But shame is one of the major blocks. So that's how I got interested in shame. And that's how you encountered me, AJ. Wow. As I heard you tell that story, I felt a wave of emotion come up because I I just immediately remembered being a 12 or 13-year-old and thinking, I would rather die than be gay, which was the truth about me. And so hearing your story, I just like, I I relate to that that feeling of thinking that death is better than shame. Yeah, that's profound. And I really just felt that in my heart, AJ, because you're not alone. That's a very silenced truth that so many young people coming out in any way, whether it's about their orientation or their illness or would literally choose suicide. And we need to address that. Mm-hmm. I've heard on your talks before you've distinguished between guilt which is I did a bad thing, and shame, which is I am a bad thing. And when those two collide, not only did I do a bad thing, like I had sex with somebody, whether it's somebody of the same partner or somebody with HIV AIDS and now I've got it, and that makes me a bad thing. I am now a bad thing. When those two collide, it's absolutely toxic and often leads to suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's such an important point because we hear about that distinction like it's sort of a choice between two things, but it's it's so common that, that they overlap, that we feel them at once. Yeah. Distinguishing between them uh, is, is quite tricky because our identity does become involved at some point with the things that I do. Mm-hmm. That they're indistinguishable at some point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I wonder if we can sort of zoom out a little bit. And I remember when I heard you talk on Clubhouse, I really appreciated 
just hearing you describe shame, like what what your perspective on it was. So I, I wonder, you know, if you could just give us a little bit of a, what's your view or definition of shame? A little bit, I just, because, you know, I've spent, I've interviewed a lot of people on the podcast, but mostly about topics around shame. And I noticed that a lot of the talk about shame has come from me, but it's such a multifaceted and complex um, experience that I think hearing other people's takes on it is also really valuable. So I'd just like to get yours. What 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 comes up for you around this whole uh, definition of shame? Yeah, so thank you for asking me um, how I would define it. And the way um, I kind of help clients through this very, very painful experience, I don't actually think there's a more painful experience than deep shame. Mm-hmm is to help them notice that it is a feeling. So as a feeling, it can pass. The problem is when it doesn't pass, when we start living from this entrenched feeling of shame. So the normal way I would help clients first understand this is to help them notice the the wheel of emotions which is a thing anybody can Google. You can just go to Wheel of Emotions. It's really helpful. There are six basic emotions, and then that's in the inner core, and then those there's like those get expanded out to 34 emotions, and then at the outskirts, the circumference of the wheel, there's about 68. So there's about 100 emotions that therapists might help their clients recognize. So helping them with some bodily literacy about affect is the first thing we would do. And we would notice that actually sadness is one of the core six and linked to that is shame. So they very much go hand in hand. And with this shame, there's unhappiness, there's loneliness, there's regret, there's disappointment, there's hopelessness. So it's a very, very complex and extremely painful part of the wheel of emotions. And we will all encounter it at some point. But some people, some people feel it so intensely they think they can never come back from it. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing we would do. Um, and we would look at the shame story. What is it that you did? And how come now you think that's who you are? And how is it affecting your aloneness? And how do we bring you back from that? How do we help you find your voice around the story that is so buried within the body that you feel you only have two choices? That is to either silence the story or change who you are. In other words, become inauthentic. That seems to be the choice most clients feel they have, neither of which is really comfortable and it's not sustainable. So then I try to offer them another option, a third option, which takes a measure of working with somebody, which is let's find your story. Let's help you find the voice around it, which is tremulous and terrified to admit Let's find a community because there's always great healing in finding out you're actually not alone, coming out of isolation and having the courage 
to integrate your authentic being and own who you are takes enormous courage. So we work on courage and vocalizing the story and supporting that person as they transition into a community of shared stories. There's always a community somewhere with a similar story. So much that I want to unpack in there. Thank you for that explanation. So thorough. I loved that you mentioned that shame is a feeling, but then it's a feeling that can become kind of all pervasive. And and you also talked about, you know, like an an experience becoming an identity. And it just does seem to be something about shame that goes from a moment to taking over our whole being. Do you find that? Yes, I do, AJ. And we have to unpack what is my story to own responsibility for and what is the collective story that I got born into. Yeah. That is part of the collective shame, which I've become really sensitive to because that's wrapped up with identity politics. So in other words, we in our generation got born into the end of patriarchy, say, and the end of colonization. And so we're unpacking what happened to us. Oh, my God, how did we get here? And there's this collective shame especially for white people and especially for men. And we're all trying to carry this burden of the story that we inherited and heal right now from a collective shame. And we're still shaming each other, which is not helping, especially as um, people are healing from our traumas. We're accusing each other of terrible things. And so We have a history of shaming each other. Men and women shame each other all the time. And that's a legacy of thousands and thousands of years. Um, White people, through their acts of colonization, have helped add to the burden of shame for people with different colored skins. Um, We're all healing our shame right now. And because it's one of the most painful things to feel, A lot of us are avoiding taking any responsibility. So, and I don't mean to shame anybody here, but these are the examples that I come across. For example, if a woman says, I really get angry when I'm still treated as lesser and I get paid less at work than my male counterparts. And the first response will be, not all men. Mm. That is a shame response because of the pain. We can't open to that pain just yet. So we're going through a lot of blaming, which is the shadow side of the shame. We, we will blame and project that pain onto others immediately will deflect because it is so painful. So white people need to own up what we did, own our history. Men need to own up what they did. And in order to do those two things, we need to open to feel our shame. Because until we can, we're not actually going to move forward. We're just blaming and deflecting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like our fear and avoidance of feeling shame causes it to kind of uh, metastasize into that deep shaming identity. 
Do you, do you think that's a, a an apt connection? Yeah, we're dealing here at depth with who are we? Such an it's an identity question, and as as a collective, we've inherited the sins of our fathers. Um, so we're dapt, we're grappling with: is that mine to own? Should I feel shame for the past? Is it my story? Or is it somebody else's story? Or do we try to just open up and feel the impact we have on each other and try to work with the shame in a non-toxic way? Can we use the shame to move forward and change our behavior as opposed to getting entrenched in toxic accusation? That question, I think, is I, I relate to it and I hear it a lot. Should I feel shame about X? And and now I'm sort of like, well, it's not a question of should. Do is there shame coming up about it? Like let's let's not tell our body what it should and shouldn't feel. Let's explore what it does feel. Does that resonate with you? Yes, it does. And so teasing these things out is really important. What is the personal story and what is the collective story? So let's say, for example, I have a client who is gay and wants to come out, but they're, they can't because of the unbearable pain of the shame they've been made to feel by their family or their church. They feel so devalued they would prefer to hide and remain inauthentic. Mm -hmm. That is a personal story that we really need to work with to help that person overcome their shame burden. So disowning the projections on themselves from the church, from maybe their dad who wanted them to be some idea of masculinity that is now outdated and part of the patriarchal idea of roles, um, slowly unraveling the personal story. But that is so woven into the collective story that we need to do both at the mm. same time. Where do those ideas come from? Who devalued you? And what is their story? Where did they get that story from? What made you feel that you're lesser because you're attracted to somebody of the same sex? It's both a personal and a collective journey. It's institutionalized. It's systemic in our politics and our religions. But it's changing. And I'm just really gratified to see how we're moving forward really quickly with these identities that have been placed in a hierarchy of value so that white, straight men are in, considered to be the most valuable members of society, all the way down to black gay women who are kind of being considered previously as the untouchables in this caste system. We have a caste system of value and mm. we're unraveling it. I love your attention to the systemic shame because I, I noticed that my focus is very individual and hearing you describe the systemic shame is really refreshing and eye-opening. And I'm hearing that there's a need to look at and own both sides of the shame story, the, the personal, authentic story, and then 
our our place or our role in or our um, legacy in the kind of greater story. And, and you know, I'm, I'm curious, is there sort of a different when, when working with my personal shame story versus the systemic shame story? Is, is there a difference there? Is it like owning one, but kind of um, challenging the other? So let's take it back to the example of the community that I got to know really well. And I went to live in this village in Africa for three months. And I really wanted to be with them because in terms of the caste system, they were considered to be at the bottom. So their their healing involves much more of a journey, say, than a white straight man with a shame burden. Mm. So I don't like to rank levels of shame, but the journey out of shame would be harder for a community of black women, say, than somebody else. So how I would explain that is the individuals that I got to know would have had a personal story of having made love with somebody who was ill, finding that they were ill, and then being so plunged into a story of shame that they would stay in their home and just wither away and die. So that story was very entrenched. If you have a whole village of people having that same personal story, you realize wow, this is happening across the village. This is no longer a personal story of shame. You need to understand this collective legacy. So, for example, in that village, there were inherited stories of patriarchal shame. So the women were considered of less value. The men would not use condoms. They'd say, sorry, we don't care. We're just going to have intercourse. You'll have to deal with it. So there was the patriarchal level. There was the embodied level of feeling shame that the body was now ill and mortal and going to die. That's a real shame. Owning our mortality is shameful to many of us. And I'll explore that in the West. We do so many things to avoid the fact that we're mortal, you know, Botox, blah, blah, blah. But in this village, then there was the added layer of the colonial legacy of apartheid. In other words, black bodies, black sick bodies, black sick female bodies were totally of no value. And the shame that goes with that is such a burden, I can't even describe it to you. The good news is that this village found its way back from that shame burden. And I would describe them as a thriving, joyful community full of hope and dignity. And the way they did that was to take their stories out of the personal, recognize this was a collective story, find each other, start vocalizing 
their story together, finding the communal aspect, and then placing it within the political context so that it becomes an object that they can look at together. Okay, I have a female black body that is sick. Institutionally and structurally, that's considered a body of zero value. How do we create value amongst ourselves? How do we start being productive? How do we start taking care of ourselves? How do we start taking care of our children and our grandchildren? How do we start creating celebration again? How do we come back from suicidal isolation? How do we start finding our agency and our empowerment? And how do we start creating and, and taking back the power that all these projections stripped from me? It's a very, very moving story. And I noticed that shame is rarely personal. It's familial, it's religious, it's political. Wow. I'm having a bit of uh, an epiphany here because of I've really seen the power of talking about my shame. But you've really just shown me that I'm doing more than that. I'm I'm actually taking my personal shame and I'm bringing it to the community. I'm I'm saying this story is actually interconnected with all of our stories and it matters. And I hadn't really understood that that was what I was doing. So I noticed because, of course, I Googled you, so I knew who I would be chatting with because I like to get to know people. I did notice, AJ, that you've done many things that this village had done. And that is you stopped, you felt your pain, you opened to it, you found your voice around it, you started telling your story, the community around you is building, and you've become an activist. And that is how you heal shame. Because wow. you reverse the silencing that shame does to our voices. Shame silence your voice. And you've reversed that. So you have you have literally done what this village did collectively, but you've done it on your own, which is really admirable. And now you've built your own community. I noticed in in the um Stoa and the other presentations you did that other younger people are really looking up to you and they need your story because now you're guiding them and that's how we heal shame. Oh, I feel such like warmth hearing that. I, I feel so seen and I'm feeling really grateful that you took the time and, and observed and uh, your reflection means a lot to me. Thank you, AJ. I've become an advocate for how we transform our pain. Um, that's what I've dedicated my life to. And that's why I got such a joy knowing I'd be talking to someone who's done that. It's mm -hmm. embodied. When it becomes embodied, it's more than a concept. And a lot of people are conceptual around healing and they're monetizing it and platformizing it, and but they haven't lived through it. And you can tell when somebody's lived through the experience that they're now teaching. And you have. So I'm really glad to be here. Mm. And, and this really connects to this theme that's running throughout, which is the creative expression. And I have certainly felt the desire 
to creatively express throughout my life, to, to want to communicate, but not, not really knowing what it was that I wanted to communicate until I discovered shame. And I wonder how one begins to really direct their creativity in a, a healing, authentic way. So what I suspect from having worked with various indigenous communities uh, here in Canada, in Africa, and various um, individuals, I've noticed a theme. And that is that usually we come to our gifts towards midlife. And there's a reason for that. Um, it takes a measure of being wounded. I think there's a connection between having gone through an embodied wounding, learning about that deeply, and then finding the healing and the articulation that is then authentically something that is our purpose. And when we start sharing that with others, we really start giving our gifts away. That's the full circle of adult maturity is to be able to then become an elder in something that you've lived through and give it back. It's a wisdom path. It's, a, it's an example of the hero's journey where you have gone from the nuclear protected family through a journey of pain and separation and the learning that comes with that, the authentic wisdom learning. And then returning to community with the gift. I think that that is a mark of transformation and completing the loop by giving back the wisdom is kind of the full adult cycle on a trajectory over a lifetime. And that requires learning how to articulate it. First of all, feeling it Secondly, surviving it. Thirdly, becoming resilient and getting your power back and your agency and then learning how to give. Because many people are stuck in the trauma cycle. They just can't heal it. They can't give. They're still frozen. That's part of trauma is our energy is blocked and frozen. Shame is part of the trauma. And so we recognize that the shame is beginning to move and heal when the energy starts going back towards others, when we can start loving them. We're not just living in response to other people's projections. We haven't internalized so completely that devaluing that we're frozen. We've actually done the work, we've healed, and now we're giving back. Mm -hmm. That resonates with me really deeply. And I, I see a journey in myself and some of my clients, where we've we've gone from something like looking outward at everyone, being like, do I fit in? Do I matter? And over the course of this journey, now we're actually the ones looking out at others saying, hey, you fit in. Yeah, you matter. And it's it's sort of this give and take between this this collaboration, belonging is a collaboration and we have to give and take for that to work. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Um, by the time we've done our own healing, we've dropped the comparative thinking. 
So what has actually happened is we've learned to love ourselves unconditionally. And that just begins to spill over and we can provide that for others. And once we've role modeled that, healing happens for others. So we all go through that phase of a younger person who's still defending against others' projections onto us. Um, and we're in our stuck in our comparative thinking of, oh my God, if I don't live up to those expectations, I'm going to be abandoned and alone. And those people are better than me because they automatically do what society wants. And yet I can't be that. Um, and so you're ranking yourself somewhere. That's what all primates do is we intrinsically try to place ourselves. Uh, where's the alpha? Where's the beta? And am I now the people pleaser just to survive? So whenever we enter a room, a community, we're subconsciously, subliminally, we're doing the ranking straight away. And the people filled with shame are generally placing themselves in this false hierarchy at the people-pleasing place because we're trading our need to belong with our authenticity. So we're, we're trying to fit in. We sacrifice our authentic self because at that point, belonging is more important to us. And that's okay. That's part of the maturation journey. Until we get enough of our own groundedness and our own agency that we can risk being alone. That is literally the most liberating secret on the planet. It is okay to be alone. That takes incredible strength. Once we've tasted that, oh my God, I actually survived the ostracization of my beloved community. Here I am. I came out in whatever way that is, whether I'm gay, whether I'm sick, whether I'm whatever it is that we're coming out of the we're continuously coming out of the closet, actually, as we unfold our potential. That's what transformation is. We're coming out of the closet minute to minute. We survived. And once being alone becomes bearable, we become invincibly powerful. It's, it's a remarkable liberation. Then we're no longer trading our soul to belong. And at that point, people are then gathering around you because you found your core. People feel that instinctively. I'm no longer trying to rank who's alpha, beta, and people pleaser. I'm just me. And if you're attracted to this community, welcome, come. We belong together. And you start creating a new unit that is more functional because we can all be authentic over here. Mm, I relate to that so much. And for me, the, the experiences, and this might just be where I'm at on my journey, but right now it's like I live both sides I still, there's the part of my brain that is doing the hierarchical categorization all the time. I notice it. And there's the part of me that's pressuring me to people, please. I notice that. So it's like, for me, all of the shame is still there doing the same things. But then there's this other, there's this distance now. So I see it. 
and I'm able to have some choice in the matter as to whether I want to listen to it or just maybe talk about it authentically. So I kind of feel like I'm this, you know, half human, half shame vampire, and I feel both sides. I wonder if that's something you've encountered. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I talk about in public spaces a lot about is what I call integral Taoism. I'm not going to go into that here, but briefly, I'm beginning to see the entire world as this interplay between yin and yang energy. Mm. Most creatives have both. So the reason I bring that up here is traditionally all men have been shamed for having any yin qualities. So that, you, you know, is anything mm-hmm. vulnerability, creativity, softness, having feelings. All women have been shamed for their yang energy. That could be agency, power, sexual pleasure, having a voice. So we're up against that. And I truly believe that healing comes when we integrate our yin and our yang. So especially for creatives, let me explain a little bit the yin quality of having receptivity, imagination, curiosity, uncertainty, opening to the mystery is all very well, but if you can't execute that with your yang energy, like if you can't sit down and put that into a book or a play or a painting and manifest with your 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 schedule and your discipline and then organizing the exhibition or the stage or you you won't get your creative gifts out there. So we need all creatives need to integrate their yin and their yang and that's the gift they bring is they generally have or they're working on it. But that involves overcoming some shame. So I'll just talk about myself for a while maybe. I'm on the outside of my body. People see me as a very yin person. I come across as very feminine. I'm my morphology, the shape of my body, the timbre of my voice, my hair, blah blah. So I present as feminine. Then people are, oh, wait a bit, she's got this other thing going on and now I don't know how to read her. She's manifesting stuff. She's got a voice. She's got opinions. She's got a lot of discipline. She's got this whole other thing going on. Ooh. And I notice the projections that come immediately that I'm not your typical woman trapped in a yin role because I've liberated myself from that. And that meant I had to overcome my shame that was given to me from my family because I developed a voice. It was given to me by my church. I was excommunicated because I said, why can't women have a voice? Why can't we speak? Why can't we pray? Why? And I was excommunicated from a lot of communities because I started creating. Women aren't supposed to be leading in this way. They're supposed to be recessive. So I won't go on to that, but I have my own shame journey about leaving communities that kept projecting onto me that I must stay quiet, small, silent, and feminine. I couldn't become a creative if I did that. 
I had to step into my yang. So I've felt that aloneness every single time a community has tried to punish me for stepping outside of my role, my yin role. And creative men have the opposite journey. Every time they find their yin and step into their yin to become a great artist of feeling, to have, you know, that vulnerability on the stage as a sensitive actor or to have the softness required to cry in public, we are shamed. So creatives have this layer of extra shaming in order to really meet their potential. And that requires you to have the balls to integrate your yin and your yang. And then you've got to find your own community. And I found that over and over that I feel at home with other people who are shamelessly integrating their opposite because there's great wisdom in that. And I personally feel that's where we transform the most. Hmm. Hmm. I've been thinking a lot about polarity theory and this yin and yang fits right into that. And it really seems like shame will polarize us to one side of different polarities for safety. It's like, okay, the polarity of I'm going to be a people pleaser and go totally into the we space seems safest. Or for some, shame might push us into the I space of avoidant attachment and I'm going to be very guarded and flat affect. And it does seem like part of the healing of shame is to rebalance these different polarities that uh, we no longer need for safety because we're not a child anymore. Does that resonate with your theory as well? That's beautifully said, AJ. You got it on, you know, nailed it. So in the language of the disciplines I follow, we call that the agency and the communion. Mm. So the vertical axis, if you imagine, is the agentic individuation. That is the yang energy. We all want to individuate. We want to separate and become unique. We want to stand out and start to manifest our full potential. That can be taken to a toxic level, which we would call toxic masculinity which is where we, we're so dissociated and so on our own journey, we can no longer relate to people. The opposite is, say, the horizontal axis is the communion axis or the yin axis, which is about cooperation, community, communication, uh, working together as a team, finding the shared story. That can also lead to toxic femininity which is I've lost my boundaries. I'm now completely non-individuated. I've merged into the collective. I've lost my, my outline. I've lost my agency and I'm now people pleasing and I'm, I belong to the hyper collective. So hyper individuation and hyper collective would just be extremes that in our common language today, we call toxic because we know that gender is on a spectrum anyway, that, you know, there are hyper-masculine and hyper-feminine and somewhere in the middle, there are the people who've integrated the best of both. And I will personally go on a limb here and say, those are the most creative people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And I, this, you know, hearing you talk about your journey really brought up something that I experienced when I first heard you in the clubhouse session. And I mentioned at the time, but it, it really bears repeating, I think, that I had shame come up. I had shame around, oh, here's this person who speaks so intelligently and eloquently about the topic that I think gives me value. So there's this, this envy, fear that I'm losing my position. But I also want to name that I think that there was some sexism and patriarchy involved. I, I imagine that if you were, you know, Dr. John speaking on Clubhouse, I wouldn't have had quite the same envious reaction. And so I just was sort of fascinated in in your session to notice that envy come up. And there was this also judgment that came up. I was trying to find a way to judge you as not being as intelligent and brilliant as you clearly are. You know, I was trying to I was trying to even out that fictional hierarchy that my brain was trying to create. And it 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 almost caught me, but then I was able to see it, and I, I ended up just mentioning it to you in the session, and you you made some really powerful statements about the pressure on men to take that expertise role. And I'm just curious, you know, is that something that you experience a lot? How does it, how does it feel to hear that this is how my system reacted? Yeah, I'm not surprised, AJ. Um, it's part of our primate DNA that still exists is that our survival requires us to do immediate ranking. We need to know where the danger is in the room. The danger is usually with the alpha. So the the, the masculine, the yang energy, is beautifully equipped to do that. And so as as a troop, we've put that on the masculine to do, and they've perfected it. The masculine will go into a room and immediately size up where is the power because I need to locate myself in the space so that I can protect the troop or that I will be safe. So that's part of the job of Yang is to be competitive and do the vertical agentic hierarchy. And I am not discounting that. That is the beautiful gift that Yang has and we all need to integrate that within ourselves and own it we all have that so there's the added burden on the masculine though that is this role that we want the masculine to be the authority to invest the power in the male we project onto him that he's got to be an expert in something it used to be arms bearing or protection of the troop. For women, the expertise might have been in the food preparation or the agrarian collecting of the foods. Or So we had our roles. We were experts in our own field. So what has happened, though, now that we are integrating our yin and our yang, women are showing up in leadership. And they have now qualified through their own discipline and hard work to be experts. And that is very confusing for men. The thing is, men don't know how to read that. So they will, and I'm talking now about heterosexual attraction, as well as, you know, this this happens even with attraction with same bodies, is there's always a yin and a yang. So let's just look at that. The yin and the yang thing is a quality. The yang 
wants to compete and establish himself as the authority. So now what does he do with a woman or a yin person in the room that he's supposed to actually be attracted to, but he actually wants to compete? So there's this very confusing conflict going on right now. And I've noticed when I do speak in rooms that the male presence is activated to want to silence, overspeak, compete, and and perhaps put me down in some way. But I'm noticing that younger men like yourself and, and more aware humans, maybe more integrated in their yin and their yang, are now not confusing the gendered body with who should be the authority. They're giving space to anybody who's earned it through their own merit. That is a complete reversal for older white men, I will say, just be frank. Older white men have never had the opportunity to have discourse with someone that they've been told they should actually be having sex with instead because they they fall into competition mode. How do you compete with something you're supposed to be having sex with? They're supposed to surrender. So this is a very confusing time for white men across the planet as those vested with the privileges up till now. Um, and it's a very sad time. There's a lot of sadness and shame collectively as people give up territory that they haven't earned because now other groups of people are earning it with their hard work. Women are earning it. People of color are earning it. We're all authorities now in our own experience. That, that is terrifying for most men and their shame is triggered because now they're no longer just automatically given the role of expert. They have to earn it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your words, you know, I I can see the that experience living in me to the, the degree that it does. And it as I hear you talk, it feels like we're maybe on the verge or we're experiencing these really important, really powerful, beautiful changes, and yet they're painful changes. It's it's like a a labor. Does does that feel like the time that we're in? AJ, we're in such a lot of pain at the moment and the pain of reassessment and change. And men in particular are in pain. And that's my heart goes out to men in particular. Women for generation, for millennia, have been figuring out how to deal with this thing, which is our silencing and being frozen into a role that traditionally has no agency but since the 50s we've been figuring that out and you know we got the vote only 150 years ago democracy started 2500 years ago in Greece but it was only for men only men had the vote and not all men no slaves only citizens um so Greek men were allowed to vote but it's taken 2500 years for women to get the vote and then only about a Hundred years later, did women of color get the vote? So we've noticed that the vote was hard won, but it hasn't yet leveled the playing field. Power 
and privilege is still unevenly distributed across the planet. It's still vested in certain bodies, those with deeper voices, those who can command a room, those with paler skins. So just say in America, we've all got the vote, but we're not equal yet. The value, people are valued differently. Black bodies are considered more dangerous. Um, female voices are considered irritating and to be ignored because they're a higher pitch. Uh, things like that. It's now this embodied display. We need to overcome our prejudices around that. Mm -hmm. So that we can literally get rid of shaming each other and all come into our own power. Yeah. Yeah. The the approach that I'm taking personally is to try to own these biases and prejudices and and notice them and and see them so that I can understand how they operate and try to counter them rather than my old approach of you know basically shaming them out of my purview such that I could convince myself I didn't have this uh, conditioned racial prejudice or sexism or even, ironically, homophobia. So I, I really appreciate the way that you so directly and candidly confront these issues in your discussion of shame. I think you've nailed it there, that we're talking about subliminal supremacies. Mm -hmm. So we each and every one of us has a ranking system that we'll bring in to our friends or our family. Um, and there is subliminal ways that we believe we're entitled. And any supremacy will create shame in the other. So that's the thing we've got to notice is how supremacies have created legacies of shame and trauma in other people that we all have to heal now that we're trying to, to create opportunities, equal opportunities to become unequal as we deserve. So right now, many, many people will never be able to reach their potentials in life because of this uneven playing field. And I think a real democracy hasn't been accomplished yet. It's only a name. A real democracy will allow for the fact that at birth, we're given these opportunities to activate our potentials and live without shame so that we can blossom, that we're a long way off from that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like the echoes of cultural conditioning run so deep and and even arguably almost an epigenetic level that it take it seems to take generations of hard work and self-awareness to clear that kind of stuff out of the culture does that feel true to you it does and you know what's beautiful though aj is i love things like netflix netflix has done more to democratize storytelling you know it's it's moved us forward as a culture so beautifully because it's telling the silenced stories of those who've suffered discrimination. So, you know, for the first time ever, we have stories of 
of homosexuality. We have stories of black people. We have stories of women. We have stories of old people. It's amazing. The democratization of storytelling has really moved our culture forward because that's the only way we'll get empathy with the other. We've otherized everybody to such a degree. And the only way we overcome that is through storytelling because that's the only way we can build empathy with each other. So um, we might have got the vote 150 years ago, but Netflix has done more for the storytelling of women and minorities and homosexuals than, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. And the more we do that, and that's why creatives are so important, we have mm -hmm. to overcome our own shame and find our voices because this is how we contribute to society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm seeing oppression in part as who gets to tell the stories. And we now are seeing this, this much-needed wave of new stories. And, of course, there's some pushback. There's some people that are saying, we don't, we don't want to hear those stories. We shouldn't have those stories shoved in our faces. But really, it's, it's back to the kind of personal to communal. It's saying these personal stories are part of society, and we do have to look at them. We don't get to just look at our little corner in order to have that full equality. And we, we can't allow story, something so precious, to be in the hands of just one group anymore. So I'm just so inspired by the way you frame that. I've never quite seen it before. Yeah, and I think this goes well beyond people stuck in a pandemic feeling bored, so what shall I do? I'll just binge Netflix. It's been a very profound time of relaxing into our bodies opening up to stories and there's a truth and reconciliation that is happening. So this word truth and reconciliation started in South Africa when the stories of the atrocities of apartheid were coming out. We, the culture there was how do we heal people from the trauma of shaming each other and taking away their franchise and silencing their stories. And and you grew up in South Africa, just to clarify, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And so I lived through the attempts to make amends, which part of that politically, it was an official process of recording the story, the silenced stories of shame and trauma. It was called the truth and reconciliation process. And now Canada has that too. I live in Canada now. And we've done that with our indigenous folks too. So we know that there's a, a real political process that we can bring to bear well over and above Netflix storytelling. There's profound healing in recording the stories that have been silenced as a political way to level the playing field. And the only way we can find the story is through looking at the shame that silenced us. And we kept the story in our body and it became frozen and it showed up as, you know, there, there are symptoms. Let me just say these. People with a shame story that they can't articulate, they can't relax, they have imposter syndrome, they have social and performance anxiety. 
they feel frozen physically and emotionally. They, they don't move much. Um, there's perfectionism. Perfectionism is a, is a great symptom of, of shame. There's withdrawal. There's constant feeling of being flawed. There's a, a lack of trust in other people. There's people-pleasing, and there's a, a failure to hold boundaries. So the shame spills over in so many ways. And the way we heal that is to start finding the story, developing self-compassion around that story, uh, tuning to those feelings, and then beginning to witness the internal voices, the dialogues of why I'm such a bad person or what did I do, and forgiving oneself and then also forgiving the people that devalued you so much because they themselves have a lack of capacity. Um, we all inherited this hierarchical thinking and there's a legacy in most people still of that, of devaluing other people without even knowing it. So we try to make peace with the, the collective culture we, we found ourselves born into and try to liberate ourselves from that because that's the only way we'll find our own potential. Otherwise, we'll be stuck in the projections of others for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Finding our authentic being is the way we heal shame. It takes takes a lot of courage. Mm -hmm. But I feel a lot of inspiration hearing you talk. And I, I see shame, when I listen to your words, I see like the gift of shame as this beacon that once we can find the courage and the feeling of the beacon and really feel it and find it in ourselves, there's so much rich authenticity there to be mined and brought into the light through creativity. And it's and it's it's also allows us to take in those stories of the other that inherently bring up some discomfort in us. If we can get that discomfort to be something that we can feel, we can hear those stories. So it just it does seem like shame is this this painful gift, but there's so much reward to be mined from engaging with it. Does that feel true to you? Yeah, AJ, I think you've mentioned it. You know, the core of this is this fear of being abandoned and alone. So that's what shame, that's always the cost. Uh, it's a sub, sometimes it's subliminal. We don't even know that that's the choice we're fearing. Like, oh, I can't come out of the closet in this way, whatever that is, because if I do, I will be abandoned. That's the subliminal thing we're up against of finding deeper and deeper authenticity. It's always the cost we imagine. Sometimes it's real. I have, I have personally experienced that over and over in my own journey, that every time I came further out of the closet in one way or another, I had to risk being alone. And the more I did that, so I'll just, this is nothing mysterious. For example, when I grew up in South Africa and I was virulently anti-apartheid and to find my voice around that, I literally had to risk the fact that the secret police at that time were parked outside my house. They were tapping my phone. They were opening my mail. They even sent, when I was a student, they paid 
other students to go and date activists to find out what they were doing. So, and I, I realized once the man I was dating was actually a spy. Wow. So I actually then left South Africa. I had to leave my community to become authentically following my conscience. So I, I moved to Canada, which I deemed was a safe place for people um, who cared about justice and, and equality. So, and then over the years, other, I've had to leave other communities. So for example, um, my ch- I think I mentioned my church excommunicated me for wanting to have a, a voice as a woman. And my family went through a difficult period of feeling that I was outspoken or finding some strength beyond their control. Mm-hmm. And then I lost a marriage of 30 years. I'll just be frank about that because I wanted to go and do a PhD and that was not considered yin enough for my yang partner. Like, Hmm. what are you doing? Like, I I can't be attracted to you anymore if you're going to integrate your yin and your yang. So I had to either swallow my authenticity, which was this burgeoning desire to be fully me, or leave. And so that was my choice. So every time I've become more authentic, I had to step into my aloneness. And I've become so comfortable with that, that it no longer frightens me to become authentic. So that's often the choice we face. And it's a terrifying choice. We have so much desire from our early evolution to belong to the tribe. And until you're prepared to risk excommunication or ostracization from the tribe, you'll never find your voice. You'll always repress it in order. That's the bargain. I'd rather belong than be authentic. Mm -hmm. But what actually happens is once you take that risk and you step out and you are alone, another community evolves around you. It's a miracle. You are never alone. People will find you. You start speaking your story. You realize, oh, other people have that story too. I'm never alone. Wow. So just to help people realize that, as you have done, AJ, once you found the courage to talk about this, and it took immense courage, community gathers around you with the same story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your words really inspire me, Sally. It's just a joy to listen to your your insight and your your honesty and your authenticity and your passion. And I, you know, talking about forming a community and I wonder how can people find you and be attracted to the community and the values and insights that you're building. You, I know you have a website. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how could people get to know you and your work and engage with you more. Sure. So as I started out saying, I'm not a shame expert. That's one of the ways that I've noticed, though, that creativity gets blocked. So I've had to learn about it. So my f- actual field is in how we transform ourselves, um, specifically through therapeutic means, I'm a counselor, through meditative means, I'm a yoga teacher and have a master's from a Hindu university in meditation practice and embodiment. And 
and creatively. So meditatively, therapeutically, and creatively and somatically are really the ways I help people transform themselves. And I have a therapeutic online practice. People can find me on my website. It's sallyadnamsjones.com. And I write books about that stuff. And I'm speaking more and more because I'm finding just, I do do one-on-one, but I just feel as I get older, I want to have more reach. Um, and so I'm collective, I'm speaking into the collective a bit more now too. So, and so I'm, I'm, I do a lot on Clubhouse and I use the model for human development called integral psychology. I'm a Ken Wilber fan and a Spiral Dynamics fan. Mm. Yeah. So people can find me online. They just put my name in Google and there's lots to find. I've been involved in lots of communities. Perfect. And I'll put links in the show notes so people can uh, go directly and engage with you. And I'm so glad that you are putting your voice out into the collective. It was really inspiring for me. And I just loved this conversation. I And I hope that we can keep in touch and maybe I can have you on the show again sometime because I feel like we're just scratching at the surface and I want to know so much more. So I just want to thank you so much for joining me, Sally. Thank you, AJ, for your time and your immense gifts and your movies and, and your book and your podcasts and, and your coaching. So I'm delighted to meet somebody who's doing the same stuff as I am. Thank you. Thank you. That feels really nice to hear. Okay.